to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Pivoli, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. The focus of today's episode will be banking. We'll be discussing credit provisioning under IFRS 9, and also discussing how actuarial skill sets can be applied to work in the banking sector. So joining me today are Eric Von Schilling, FCIA, Senior Vice President, Balance Sheet Management at CIBC, and Mike Donovan, Senior Vice President, Enterprise Risk at CIBC. Thanks to both of you for taking the time to speak with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you, Chris. Okay, Mike, we'll start off with you. Can you provide us with a high-level overview of credit provisioning under IFRS 9? What does it mean? Sure, Chris. So that's a great question. You know, when you think of credit provisioning under IFRS 9, effectively banks have to set aside provisions for loans they make and potential loan losses associated with them. So under the current construct of IFRS 9, when we originate a loan, there's stage one provisions we call them. And those are you know, effectively, if I give you a new credit card, I have to estimate on a probability weighting, you know, how many clients are going to default and what those losses would be. And so we look at a 12 month period for people that we originate new loans to. And if those clients then have over a period of time, whether it's one month in or 10 years into that, uh, say credit card example, if they experience a a decrease in credit quality, and so there's different ways to measure that, uh, we move those into stage two. And then again, based on mathematics, we have to look at what's the lifetime probability of losses there. And so we have to set aside a, a provision for lifetime losses on that client who's experienced some sort of increase in credit risk. And then stage three is really once people have defaulted. So whether it's a credit card loan or a, um, you know, a mortgage or an oil and gas loan or you know, lending to some big company, once they've defaulted, then we have to you know, take an estimate of what we think our losses are in a much more detailed fashion on an individual basis and set aside uh, provisions for that. So that's, you know, at a broad base level, what uh, IFRS and credit provisioning is under that. So Eric, I see some similarities here between credit provisioning and some of the work that actuaries do in their traditional reserving processes at insurance companies. Can you maybe tell us about some of the similarities and differences you see from your perspective? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, you know, I've been working in the banking sector for uh, upwards of 18 years, and it's been interesting as I transition from the uh, more traditional insurance side of things over to banking. It was very uh, quick to sort of pick up on there's a lot of similarities actually happening when you get down under the hood of, of what's happening. So when you think of the process that Mike just talked about, uh, fundamentally, the, the models and the estimates underneath it involve many similar actuarial concepts. So, you know, you have to estimate a probability of default, which is like your mortality uh, decrement that we do over there. You have to calculate if they do default, what is the loss given default, which in, is the severity calculation. You have to calculate what is that projection, not only next year, but as Mike said, there's a lifetime aspect of that once it kicks into a certain level. So you're projecting out over several years and understanding how that's going to involve. And then the last part of it is, you know, you, you are analyzing the actual characteristics of each of those individual loans and products, and you're using those attributes to uniquely sort of estimate what that contributions are. So, so it's kind of interesting when you actually get under the hood, while the application is different, the language is a little bit different, a lot of the fundamental aspects uh, are actually quite the same. I'm going to add one more point about, you know, what makes it different. And I think what's different in the credit provisioning is there is a, a much more heavy 
importance of systemic risk factors, right? And you know that's the fact that it hits correlation right across the economy. You know, unemployment rates, GDP is impacting your book. So whereas the, the insurance one has a lot more diversification in the portfolio effects, a lot of what comes down to the provisioning is a bit more about understanding those macroeconomic uh, linkages to the process. Okay, interesting. So Mike, back to you. Can you tell us uh, what aspects of IFRS 9 are different from the prior accounting standards when it comes to credit provisioning? So the lifetime provisioning on stage two and three and the forward-looking indicators, how has that changed the nature of credit provisioning at banks? Sure, so that's a great question. And and a lot of what's changed from for IFRS 9 and the way we look at the provisioning process and what's different from the past was really born from some of the criticisms from the you know the global financial crisis from 2008 2009 where banks were late to recognize the losses so under the prior accounting standards it was more wait till you see the losses happen and then incur uh, the charges for that it was a general allowance that was set aside at, at a macro level but it didn't move up and down nearly as quickly as the conditions were dictating. So when the accounting standards boards went and looked at what we could do differently, you know, they really said, let's use forward-looking indicators and let's use the stage one and two to make sure that we provide for deterioration in credit quality upfront. And then therefore we set aside reserves for potential losses as we're seeing the, the credits deteriorate before they get to the impaired status and you have to set aside loans because it does generally takes some period of time for the, the credit to deteriorate over a period of time. And Eric just mentioned you know, the broader macro factors, unemployment, GDP. In a more traditional recession, you know, you can see unemployment start to rise, peak, and then recover over a period of time. And it generally takes clients some level of time to experience financial distress, which ultimately leads to loan losses. So by looking at that early indicators or early warning indicators or changes in forward-looking indicators. Effectively, you're building the provision right up front for what you expect to lose based on current economic conditions and current credit quality of your book. And then as things deteriorate, you book more provision. Or if the economic indicators improve, then you can lower your provision levels. So it's meant to be a little bit more dynamic. It has created a little more volatility, but uh, that's ultimately the goal of it is really to to move the credit provisioning up front as opposed to waiting until you see losses occur. Okay, and can you explain what role quantitative models play in this whole process and and how do you apply your judgment on top of that? Sure, so quantitative models are a very large part of the provisioning process. And so for, for us at CIBC, we've built models around the different portfolios. So there's we've got models for credit cards, we've got models for mortgages, we've got models for personal lending, we've got various different models for corporate and commercial lending, small, small business lending. So all of these have models, and Eric touched on it a little bit at the start there, where we're trying to estimate people's probability of default, and then ultimately the loss given default, and what your exposure at default would be. So those are the three key components in the models. And you know, my team's got a lot of, a lot of smart people that uh, build these models and look at all of the data points that we have, all of the history that we have for our clients and try and model out in different scenarios what drivers are going to move those loss numbers. So Eric touched on you know, macroeconomic factors like unemployment, gross domestic product, GDP, 
house price indexes, uh, you know, those are the three examples of, of ones that would affect the retail book, you know, oil prices, uh, the S&P 500 index, different things like that would impact our corporate and commercial models. So the team looks at various different macroeconomic data points that are available, correlates those with what we've seen in history in the book, and comes up with models then that tries to estimate uh, what, what will happen in terms of people defaulting, how much money we would lose when they default in your exposure at default, multiply all those together and you get, get what the, the loss would be depending on what stage it's in. So models are you know, a, a key component in all of this. And then you know, ultimately when we look at it and, and come up with you know, the number each quarter, the models are your starting point. And then we have to apply our expert judgment and expert credit judgment. And in particular, during the last three quarters since the pandemic started, expert judgments played a, a much more critical role looking at, you know, are the ratings correct for a corporate loan? Because we don't, you know, we don't have new information as of the, you know, the first day of the pandemic, we had to make overlays or expert judgment to account for that. And same on the retail side, you know, we were looking at what headline unemployment would be and with the amount of government support there that was given out in, in Canada in particular, you know, that helped offset that. So even though the true headline unemployment rate might be 11 or 12 percent you know we tried to estimate what the true feel of what that would be in our, our credit portfolio and adjusted for that as we went through that so you know, generally speaking in more benign times uh, the models drive pretty much all of the, the results that we'd expect to see but there's always an element of expert credit judgment and management overlay that's applied to make sure that if, if the factors that you had in your model that back test very well uh, for some reason you know, having adjusted as quickly as the world is changing especially in this you know the pandemic times that we're living in then you apply expert credit judgment to that and try and come up with your you know, most prudent and best estimate of what you think the, the reserve should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah it's interesting you mentioned the pandemic because you're applying this new standard in one of the worst and most disruptive times we've been in uh, with the real downturn and obviously is going to be an impact on credit. Were there any other things you learned uh, trying to implement this new standard in this time in our uh, in our financial history? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, the, the models were trained on history. So we've we've certainly learned that, you know, history always isn't a great predictor of the future. And so we've seen you know, as I mentioned, some of the pieces and correlations that we would have expected around unemployment or GDP, given the level of government support that came out, were, you know, we had to account for that and adjust for what the true feeling was on, on the credit portfolio. I think the other learning so far uh, has been just how fast the models can move up and down both directions, depending on economic uh, forecasts. So the forward-looking indicators are FLIs. We've got a economics team at the bank that comes up with all the forecasts and is independent of risk and, and the business and so they really set the stage for what our models are going to do depending on what their you know estimates are and i think we've we've seen early on when they you know back in q2 last year and you know, when they first came out with some of the you know, high high unemployment rates or you know drastically lower negative gdps just how quickly the models would move and then applied expert credit judgment to temper some of that movement at the very beginning and have continued to do that because i think that's one of the, the big learnings here is just how quickly things have moved the other one is is you know just around the 
the, the migration of credits from stage two to stage three, uh, as we talked about at the beginning. So if somebody was in stage two, they've experienced you know, some sort of credit uh, distress. When they move to stage three, they're, they're impaired. And as part of the IFRS process, you, know, you have some portion that's in stage two, and when they transfer to stage three, the, you know, the balance effectively moves over to help offset some of the losses. And, and what we're seeing now is you know, just trying to observe the, the timing of those and how that's moving. And I think there's, there's a potential for a little bit of a timing mismatch between some of the stage two moves and people have talked about releases to what, uh, what stage three might happen. So it's definitely, you know, it, it, I don't know if everyone expected it to be a one for one sort of perfect uh, linear match, but certainly there's, there's more nuances to it. Okay. Now you mentioned you had a very smart team of people working for you. So what skill sets and experience do you look for when trying to build a team to support this process? And from your perspective as a non-actuary, do you have any advice on how actuaries in more traditional fields could possibly uh, switch to this sort of role in banking? Sure. So thanks, Chris. You know, I, I, I sort of have a, a running joke. My background is, uh, is I've worked in finance for the first 10 years of my career at CIBC and then moved to risk management. But you know, it's, if, if you can add and subtract, you can work in finance. If you like to multiply and divide, you can work in risk. If you like math, you can work in either one of them. So you know, I think for, for actuaries who are interested in, in working in the banking sector, credit provisioning, and just looking at my team overall, on the modeling side, there's a lot of strong math, quant, science type background. So that's one of the, the critical skill sets there. And so I you know, envision that an actuarial background would be very similar in terms of that math science starting point. So that's a great, you know, a great starting point to have, I think, for working in risk and working in the modeling teams. And then some of the other groups on my team that, that work through it are more, you know, just more math and math and uh, business oriented uh, roles and backgrounds and they're you know really focused on you know helping build some of the, the the reporting and the analytics that goes with it and there's a lot of work with the the credit risk team on the retail credit risk team where again they have you know, teams of people that are building models so i think there's a lot of crossover potential for actuaries who are used to building models looking out you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 years for life insurance models, say, or different things like that. Our, ours don't stretch that far, but it's certainly, I think, a very similar field, and, and there's potential crossover there. Okay, so Eric, maybe we'll, we'll give the same question to you. Um, what traditional actuarial fields do you think would have the easiest transitioning to banking, and, and what skill sets would be best for actuaries to have if they want to get into this sort of business? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I wouldn't say that there's one specific area that does. I think it really actually takes just a, a curiosity and an ability to look beyond the specific technical aspects of what you do to the more general, you know, I'm applying it to a business problem there and what can I leverage? So clearly, you know, some of the, the insurance side, I think some of the, the property and casualty side that do some, you know, logistic regression type analysis. There's a number of those things that would be quite applicable, right, from a skill set perspective when you get into the, the credit analytics and the support the process. But I would also say, I think a key part of that is, you know, just the ability that actuaries do do and that they're leveraging statistical techniques really in the application of a business problem in financial risks, right? And so it's the, 
it's the combination of those two that I think is also a, an interesting opportunity and sort of that second area that, that Mike talked about. And so that allows you to be very comfortable with models and leveraging them, but also having the judgment involved to apply, understand uh, assumptions, uh, stress testing, and having that general feel for managing a system that's fraught with uncertainty or what we're trying to, to do. So I think it's really, it's a combination of those things. And you know, I myself have had quite a, uh, uh, a rewarding career, uh, you know, exploring the banking sector and uh, making a lot of these connections. So it's been great. Okay, and Eric, uh, you are the chair of the CIA Banking Committee, so I was hoping you could uh, wrap up here and just tell us more about that committee, uh, what are the things you do, and if somebody in our membership is interested, how can they get involved with you? Yeah, thanks, Chris. We started this a couple of years back of, uh, you know, we looked out, there's been a number of actuaries who have just made the personal initiative and have been working in the banking sector, but it hasn't really been broad-based. And when we looked at that, we thought there is an opportunity. There's a, a lot of interesting application if you get into sort of a wider fields uh, view of that. And so the banking committee is really centered around uh, looking at supporting that, identifying you know opportunities, broadening awareness, both within the actuarial community and then within the, the banking sector as well of the skill sets. And so we've been working through that with the goal of really trying to build a bit of a network amongst the, the actuarial community and to support that development. So we're just beginning. It's a small group here, but I think there's an interesting opportunity for actuaries as they uh, potentially get beyond their, their traditional areas. So, I mean, if, if anyone's interested in that, we do have some materials on the, the Canadian Institute of Actuaries website. It's a good resource or feel free to, to reach out to any one of us if you're looking for further information on them. Okay, sounds good. Well, listen, that was very interesting today. So thanks to both of you for joining us in this episode. Great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. Thanks, Mike. We encourage you to subscribe. You can do so through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. And if you like today's episode, we would ask you to leave a five-star rating or a comment. And we would like to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions or episode ideas, please send them to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. Until next time, I'm Chris Fivoli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk.